2: My own? What are you doing? I'm using a Sharpie on staff pictures to cover over the face of a certain producer who never used to work on this show and who never existed and whose name sounded like Blatrick Schmehill. Oh, you mean Pat... We don't say that name. <laughs> Why not? Because there never was any such person. Why not? And what's that smell? I melted down a bunch of employee of the year awards that somebody who doesn't exist could not have possibly won. Yeah, I don't
3: understand the purpose of
2: erasing past. <laughs> this is a very old patric practice. Greg, the Romans would erase all evidence of emperors who disgraced their godlike office. Take for example Caesar Poopy Pantius the 1st. I never heard of him. My point exactly.
3: But this person never disgraced anything. He just left to become a famous science reporter. He's sitting right over there.
2: You know, I can hear you guys talking. Greg, names have power. For this radio show to go forward, we have to cleanse it of a name that no longer serves any function. Just because Patrick decided You said Patrick. Oh, I can't believe I did that. Did what? Said Patrick. You did it again. Maybe if I say it backwards twice, that erases it. I've got the historical deletion manual right here. Well, I'm checking on this. We've got a whole show for you on the history of erasing history. And now, if you could just believe Lizzie Kaplan never existed, it would make the pain go away. Colin McEnroe.
4: No, nothing can make that pain go away. All right, yes, we are going to talk about this. It, it, it goes on all the time. Uh, in It goes on usually in pretty restrictive regimes, but even uh, after the downfall in 2011 uh, of Hosni Mubarak, Uh, uh, An Egyptian court actually ordered that all traces uh, of him and his wife be removed from public squares and streets and libraries and public institutions around the country. The whole idea was to—well, I don't know what the whole idea was because obviously— you're not going to fool the Egyptian public into thinking that these people never existed. So why does this happen so often, and and uh, I mean, what's the real psychology behind it? What are what are regimes trying to do when they really try to make a name go away, uh, and, and, and the records and the memories that go along with that name make those disappear too? So uh, today on the show, we're going to explore that question. Um, what happens when you try to do it? What lessons maybe do you lose when you try to do it? Uh, joining us right now is uh, Eric Varner, an associate professor in the Department of of Art, History, and Classics at Emory University. He's joining us from Rome. Where else would he be if we're going to explore damnatio memoriae, which is what we'll talk about first? Also with us, Mariana Tax-Cholden, uh, the Morton's and Distinguished Professor Emerita at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, a member of the committee to visit the library at the University of Chicago. She's also the author of *Offense Around the Empire: Russian Censorship of Western Ideas Under the Sars* and *The Red Pencil: Artists, Scholars, and Censors in the USSR*. I think this is. One of the places we really associate this practice with, too, I mean, I think we really um, at least casually think of it as something in particular that Stalin did, and we are not wrong. We'll come to that, uh, but let's uh, start with the, the most uh, ancient version uh, of the practice, and it is now referred to as damnato memoriae, but I'm not really sure that that's something that would have been used at the time of the Roman Empire. I think it's a more recent coinage. Uh, but Eric Varner, maybe you can start us out there. Uh, how did the Romans handle this whole question of trying to get rid of somebody whose name they didn't want to hear anymore?
1: Well, I think they had um, a lot of difficulty because there was a real tension between um, how do you make someone disappear uh, versus how to disgrace or denigrate their memory? So they were constantly kind of negotiating that and um, taking different, uh, different approaches given um, individual situations.
4: Yeah. So my sense of this is that sometimes uh, the the erasure of memory could almost be regarded. Correct me if I'm wrong here. As kind of a middle way. For example, I think Claudius negotiated that for Caligula rather than a formal, open statement of censure and disgrace. Uh, it was more like, well, he he never. He kind of never existed.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Claudius was in a sort of. Uh, delicate position, since he was the uncle of Caligula and they belonged to the same dynasty, and he sort of had to make uh, Caligula uh disappear without completely denigrating his memory and throwing um you know bad light on the the new imperial um, endeavor
4: now to do this though to to in fact uh, do this kind of erasure this was. Um, how extensive was this i mean in other words emperors were mentioned in oaths and prayers they appeared on coins um, so how extensive was the effort to get rid of somebody's name and and image
1: well it varied in individual cases i mean for caligula um, his name is erased in some inscriptions but not all um, his portraits were removed from public display in many instances but not all instances or some examples in the eastern part of the empire, particularly in Crete, where it seems that his portrait statues remained on view in, um, in the public square. His, um, we have a historical mention that his coinage was recalled and melted down. A later author, Cassius Dio, mentions this in the 3rd century AD. But based on the evidence of coin hoards, it doesn't really seem that that was probably carried out, um, carried out extensively. And a number of his um, marble portraits were also physically re-carved to represent other emperors. So that was another kind of erasure, replacing his facial features with either um, those of revered predecessors like Augustus, the founder of um, the empire, or his successor, Claudius.
4: So it must, for historians and archivists, be a little bit of a challenge to figure out who went through this process and who didn't. In other words, since the process involves erasing traces, um, is it also f- difficult to find traces of this process having been invoked?
1: It is. Um, it, when you have inscriptions, a lot of times there'll be enough left of the original inscription that you can kind of fill in the blanks. And in terms of the um, the reconfigured portraits, what's interesting is that I think um, quite deliberately the artists who were doing this left legible traces of what they were doing so that a visually astute viewer um, could read the transformation of, say, Caligula turning into um, to Claudius. And, of course, a lot of these um, portraits and inscriptions were in very... Um, visible public locations. And at least for a generation or two, there would be a kind of cultural memory of um, what had been there before and what had um, replaced or erased it.
4: So how did they handle, let's say, I mean, okay, Caligula is an example of somebody who at least, although I know there's been a sort of a revisionist biography of him, but, but comes to it down to us as kind of a bad guy. Another person who comes down to us as a bad guy, bad emperor, is Nero. So, so how did they handle his memory?
1: Well, Nero is an even more interesting case because um, he was um, still, even after um, his death and his official condemnation by the Roman Senate, was very popular with certain segments of the Roman society. Um, so his successors really had to walk a fine line of um, trying to get rid of him, but not, but also sort of access this lingering popularity that he had as well. Um, So once again, his name is erased in inscriptions. Um, Some of his coins are actually defaced, and um, well over 75 um, surviving marble portraits originally represented him and were um, reworked to represent other people.
4: Hmm. So, Mariana, Marianna, uh, as you're listening to this, you know, so far we're talking about emperors and leaders uh, of Egypt. We're talking about big shots. I- is that typically who suffers this fate? Is it uh, almost inevitably the leader, or is it sometimes uh, the little people?
0: Oh, it, it covers the whole range. Um, certainly leaders um, suffer, and they're, they're most visible. For example, um, Trotsky, who didn't quite make it to be a leader but was a very important figure uh, and um, uh, very politically uh, important, um, ceased to exist as a person um, wiped out in every mention possible in books, in pictures, and so on, and even in the language. So that if you go to the Stalin era, and I'm talking primarily now about the Stalin era, which is the worst uh, of, of uh, example of, of censorship. If you go to the encyclopedia, the large Soviet encyclopedia that, that was published, the second edition in Stalin's lifetime, you will find an entry for Trotskyism, mm. but no entry for Trotsky and no mention made in the trotskyism article about trotsky so certainly uh very visible uh high ranking public figures uh, were were erased in as effective a way as as possible but the same thing happened to the little guy all kinds of little guys were erased when something that they wrote or something that they said Um, was out of favor for who knows what reason in many cases. Uh, The person, him or herself, may have been taken to a, a cellar and shot or may have been sent to the gulag in the far reaches of what was then the Soviet Union, and that person's name was deleted if if something if a, if his or her book were in the library, it would be removed from all the libraries, a letter would go out to all libraries that had a copy of this person's books and they would be removed uh, and uh, if there were portraits um, of this person, even you know an ordinary person uh, somewhere they would be uh, deleted and of course by 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 the uh, 20th century, we had uh, the technique of airbrushing out of somebody out of a photograph very well developed. And there's a, a wonderful book by David King, British photographer and history of photography, called *The Commissar Vanishes*, which shows graphically how pictures went from from one. Uh, stage to another of uh, deleting this person or that person, very much like what Eric is describing uh, of reworking these, these portraits or marble statues. Things, things
4: don't change that much, I guess. <laughs> um, well, I want to come back to uh, the Commissar Vanishes in a second, but I also yeah. want to come back to things don't change that much. So, Eric yeah. uh, Varner, I'm going to go back over to you, but I, I want to hear from both of you on this. But well, let's start with Eric Varner. So yeah. what, what do societies think they're doing when they do this? In other words, it's not realistic to suppose that, you know, as of Wednesday, uh, Caligula is going to vanish in any particular, particularly significant uh, way from, from public consciousness. So, so when this is happening, it seems like a more atavistic or instinctual impulse is being indulged. Uh, I mean, what, what do you think they're trying to do?
1: Well, again, I think it, it kind of gets back to that tension. So do you want to make the person disappear or do you want to remember them badly? Um, And so the Romans, I think, in some cases are trying to do it both ways. Um, There's probably the most um, virulent condemnation occurs at the beginning of the the third century A.D., and it's the condemnation of an emperor named Gaeta by his Mm -hmm. own brother, Caracalla. And Gaeta is pretty much wiped off the face of the, the map in terms of inscriptions and images, but in a lot of a lot of instances, for instance um an arch that celebrated the family here in Rome he's conspicuously present by his absence. I mean you see these blank holes and um you would know you know who was there and who had been um been removed and maybe think about him in a negative in a negative way and for the Romans too, it was um as a, obviously for the soviets um it's very political because um by expurging the image of the disgraced Gaeta, you are kind of reaffirming your loyalty to the victorious brother and Emperor Caracalla.
4: Well, yeah, and you know, I mean, Orwell in 1984 famously yeah. says, he who controls the present controls the past, he who controls the past controls the future. So uh, Mariana attacks Cholden. Th- that's another... Um, that, that's another impulse to do this, right? You are exercising publicly, exercising your control not only over your external circumstances but over reality. If you, if you can suddenly decide that something that was now was not, that's a way of displaying control.
0: Oh, absolutely, uh, very, very important, and um, even you know before the the Bolshevik Revolution, when we're talking about. The kind of censorship that was under the Tsars—it was—it was much more visible in, in in many ways. But the message was very strong. Uh, and coming back to the to the Soviet time, when um, something would disappear today, or uh, a new uh, kind of of, of um, text requirement would come out for writers, or a painting requirement for for artists, and so on it 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 would be subtly done in the in the sense that um, uh, no one made a public statement to all artists that from now on you're going to paint happy peasants uh, and and happy workers and stop with you know landscapes or or historical topics that we don't approve of. It just happened. You knew that you needed to to work this way, and the other very, very, well, extremely persuasive um, thing that was going on was that if you didn't do it the right way, the price you paid might be extremely high. Under Stalin, the price you paid was often with, with your life. Um, in milder periods, the price for not doing it right might be not getting published or not having your composition Performed by the uh, orchestra, or losing your your limited uh, ability to travel abroad, um, or shop at certain uh, special stores and that sort of thing. So there were there were great pressures on people to conform to whatever appeared to be the the latest um, rules for. Artists, writers, composers, sculptors, whatever, scientists, whatever, whatever you might be. Uh, And at the worst of times, um, it was a very, very serious, serious business and enforced in certainly uh, ways that left no question who was in power.
4: You know... um uh, Eric Varner, Mariana, is talking, for the most part, about the very peremptory behavior of an autocrat. Um, Stalin uh, presumably didn't have to run his ideas by anybody and didn't choose to. It sounds like you're talking about a slightly different um, set of negotiations uh, That that, to some degree, anyway— Emperors had a free hand, but to another degree, they interacted with the Senate. And that that this process of removing an emperor from from public memory or public display seems at times to be a little bit of a negotiation, like multiple parties saying, What's the right way to do this? What's the right, what kind of problem is Gato? What kind of problem is Nero? How do we handle this? Should there be a public condemnation or should there be one of these more passive, you know, public um, memory purges? Was it, that, was it something that was kind of being felt out and felt through by multiple parties? Yeah, I think that's a very good way of
1: thinking about it. Um, there are a number of, of flexible sanctions that could be leveled against someone's memory, and um, it was definitely not a monolithic process. I mean, you mentioned that um, the term we often use for ancient Rome is damnatio memoriae, condemnation of memory, and you're absolutely right. That term was coined in the 17th century, so it's early modern. So there was not, you know, the Domnatio Memoriae in ancient Rome. It was very much a negotiation. And things could change, too. For instance, um, Nero reappears in the late 4th, early 5th century um, A.D. on a series of um, medallions that were distributed at the Circus Maximus. So even though he had had um, several centuries of, of a good deal of uh, oblivion, he comes back on the scene um, and is celebrated on these, um, on these medallions.
4: All right. We are going to take a break. Um, we are going to say thank you very much to Eric Varna. This is fascinating stuff. Uh, I'm kind of a Roman history addict anyway, but this has been uh, amazing and very cool stuff. Thank you very much for, for taking time out from your, your day you know, or night, perhaps, in Rome uh, to talk to us.
1: Well, thank you very much for asking me.
4: All right. We'll be back with more of Mariana Taxcholden after this. We will talk uh, quite a bit more about what happens in these very autocratic, uh, as Eric says, monolithic situations uh, when purges of memory take place. Yeah, remember. All right, we're back. Our topic today is uh, the uh, topic of historical deletion of erasure, of damnatio memoriae, this uh, attempt to make somebody go away. Uh, sometimes it's a leader, sometimes it's a dissident, sometimes it's somebody else. As we go along here, by the way, uh, we'll be talking to Mariana tox in this se- uh, section. She is the Mortensen Distinguished Professor Emerita at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, uh, the author of, among other things, The Red Pencil, Artists, Scholars, and Censors in the USSR. Um, if you have questions or comments, first of all, you may call us at 860 270 Seven five seven two six six eight six zero two seven five seven two six six, or you may tweet us at wnpr. Colin. Special shout out to the person who came up with the show Lydia Brown, who unfortunately had to go home today. She was bitten by a zombie. She's now a walker, uh, but she's the cutest walker you ever saw. Uh, all right, so um, no, actually, she's just home with the flu. But uh, do, do feel free to call in as we go along here. Mariana, uh, Mariana, uh, tax tolden Let's before we go to Russia again. Let's talk a little bit more about this as an instinct. It seems to me that probably as long as there has been any kind of record keeping, there's probably been conscious record expunging. I mean, if you even think about it, even in our daily lives at a personal level, we all know people who, you know, have a rule in their house that the ex-husband can never be mentioned or, you know, the ex-girlfriend's name can never be said in front of the ex-boyfriend. I mean, there's something very, as I said before, atavistic and instinctual about this idea of making somebody go away
0: yeah I couldn't agree more in fact i I think that when we talk about instinct, we probably need to go back to earliest humans before recorded history. I think there there are two instincts working against each other. Eric was talking about about tension i I see a an ongoing tension, and I expect it it has always existed in human beings between expressing yourself. And keeping other people from expressing themselves, mm-hmm. so between freedom of expression and control of expression. And so once we can start having actual tools, um, you know implements of writing, implements of sculpting, whatever, um, uh, we can we can go to wonderful lengths of creativity in creating things, and someone else looking at that same thing can say, that's got to go, we've got to get rid of this, it is wrong, it is against whatever. And so those those instincts, I, I think they must be instincts, because they're both very strong, and I suspect they go way far back.
4: Well, you also see this in... Um I mean, it's sort of the notion that everything contains its opposite. But you you you, yeah. you put up statues to commemorate somebody, to glorify somebody, particularly if you put up statues during their lifetime. And then yeah. we see at, at times of uprisal, uprisings or regime change. And I'm going to take the Saddam Hussein statue out of the equation for a yeah. second because that appears to have been an American psyops uh, operation. But all the yeah. same, they were tapping into something that everybody understands. Yeah. And you saw it with the Gaddafi statue it, that – okay, the first thing we want to do is wreck all this stuff that mm-hmm. that is the glorification and record of the person we're getting rid of.
0: Right. And we also want to change the names of the streets mm-hmm. back to what they were in their last version. You know, so that if something was named Lennon Street, uh, but it used to be Old Mill Street, then you – Some people say, well, we should go back to Old Mill Street. And that's been done a lot, not only in in the former Soviet Union, but in in lots of countries. Um, And there's a good argument to be made either way. You may say, let's go back to what it was before this horrible aberration took place. Or you might say, you know, memory is important, and the generations to come need to know what went on in this prior horrible period that our country has gone through. So when you destroy a statue completely, um, you're, you're attempting to wipe out the memory of it completely. If you put that statue in a museum and have a really strong label near it on the wall that explains when it was made, under what circumstances, who it was commemorating, why that person was being commemorated at that time, and why we now see things differently and how we would now interpret it, that's a wonderful way of preserving history. And so I mean, it's it's a real tension, again, that word tension, between wiping out the memory of something that at some point somebody thinks is bad and preserving it but in a historical context. These are really tough questions.
4: Yeah, and I think – that's absolutely true. And, and it strikes me that all, these these two acts are not always equivalent. I mean, I was trying to, I ran out of time today, but I was trying to figure out what Romanians did when they finally got rid of the Ceaușescus. Yeah. So the, so the Ceaușescus, you know, are, are the kinds of people who would try to control everything, control as, yeah. much, as much information as possible, glorify themselves, exclude other opinions. Um, so once you finally get rid of the Ceaușescus, you'd sort of think, well, Let's get rid of all all signs of them. But you don't want to do that for the exact reason that you're saying. I mean, you might want to get rid of things okay. that actively glorify them, but you want something there to remind you of how you used to have to live.
0: I was in Albania shortly after the changes. And, of course, they had Enver Hoxha, who was fully as crazy and awful as the Ceausescus or Stalin or, you know, any of the other world's uh, eminent dictators. Uh, and I was in a library in a in a small city in Albania, and I saw an incredible heap of books that practically went up to the ceiling in the stacks and I asked the librarian who was showing me around what what are those books and she said, "These are all books that were just full of hoja mathematical textbooks that had his Writings in them, and you know, novels and and histories and you name it, cookbooks, whatever they were. And I said, well, what are you what are you doing with them? Well, we're we're going to get rid of them all. And I said, well, is there somewhere in this country a copy of each of those books? Because I was terrified by the idea that those were all going to be gotten rid of, and there would be no trace of what happened under this. Horrible regime, and I was relieved to learn that there was a copy. At least I was told that there was a copy of each book in the National Library uh, being preserved. So I mean, you know, this is the 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 urge to destroy it. I, I I'm sure I would feel that way myself if I'd had to live under under that kind of regime. And yet, um, the part of me that's a scholar and that cares a lot about memory and about history really wants there to be uh, an effort to preserve these things somehow so that they can be explained to future generations.
4: You know, um, you raise an interesting question, which is how many copies of any book are there? So that does that does take us to Stalin, right? So so Stalin, Stalin can can erase somebody, can change the historical record, can obliterate or alter pictures in in the number in the books that are actively owned by the state. But those same books, if they've had any kind of printing, any kind of publication, are in private hands. One of the rather horribly miraculous accomplishments of of Stalin was occasionally to get people, as I understand it, and I think it might be in the commissar vanishes, to, to do the same thing to their own privately held books, right? To just, oh, indeed.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and it took uh, a great deal of courage not to do that. A good example is that same um, um, edition of the large Soviet encyclopedia that I mentioned, the second edition that came out under Stalin. Um, there was, in volume five, a portraits uh, of Beria, who was one of Stalin's most, what can I say, evil associates um, with blood all over his hands and and so on. And Beria had a nice article about him and a beautiful portrait, full-page portrait of himself in Volume 5. Volume 5 was printed, published, and distributed right after Beria fell from favor, Stalin's death, uh, and Beria's execution. And uh, this volume five had already been sent to all the subscribers of the encyclopedia. Those libraries in the Soviet Union that received it were sent um, a a notice informing them that they needed to take volume five they needed to razor that page out that had the portrait of Beria in the article. They needed to tip into the binding the enclosed replacement pages on the Bering Sea, Bering Jeez. Beria. They fit at exactly the right place. And um, believe me, most of the libraries, all the libraries that I've encountered, did it. They took care of that. But... That same message and the same replacement pages were sent to subscribers abroad. So the University of Illinois Library, Harvard Library, the Library of Congress, uh, the University of Chicago, where I do most of my work these days, all of our libraries received that notice. And we, of course, were under no pressure whatever to cut out those pages and replace them. So we kept all of it. We kept all of it. We put it into the binding. We put the notice telling us what to do into the binding of Volume 5. So we now can look at Volume 5 and we can show students or other people who are interested exactly what kind of thing happened. So it took great nerve. Um, I once met a, a Russian in one of my frequent trips around the country who told me when I talked about this episode he said, um, you know, my, my father was very brave. He did not do what he was supposed to do with Volume 5. He kept it. I still have it. And I, I said to him, well, that was indeed brave, because he risked being shot or sent to the gulag. That was a very bad time still, uh, and it didn't get better until Stalin was truly out of the picture, and that took some time. So these are very, very real, um, material um, consequences of of, of wanting to, to get rid of somebody.
4: And yeah. there, there are two ways to get rid of somebody. I'm not counting the actual third way of. I mean, they, yeah. got, they got rid of Trotsky, uh, literally. Um, yeah. But the two ways to get rid of people. One of them is the way you're describing right now, which is retroactively. I mean, all the materials that exist, even things that maybe were editions of, uh, of encyclopedias that were, you know, published within a few days of the right. decision being made. You know, but that's hard work. It's hard work try to get the toothpaste back in the tube. What you really want to do if you're Stalin or another autocrat is to stop it before it starts, right? To, everybody knows that so-and-so doesn't exist. You know, every librarian, every publisher, every writer, everybody knows what they can say and what they can't say, who they can mention and who they can't. I mean, that's much easier, right?
0: That is much easier and and much harder to deal with, if you're trying to figure out what's going on from outside, as as I and other scholars have done. Um, it's such a different kind of censorship that I stopped even using the same word to describe it. I I came up with a kind of feeble word that uh, I call it omni-censorship, which, which is supposed to imply overall everything censorship, which... You know, censorship was not acknowledged in the Soviet Union. From Lenin's first um, uh, addresses about censorship, he, he said early on, he said, censorship is a bourgeois phenomenon. It existed in Russia before our Bolshevik Revolution, and it exists today in bourgeois countries, Germany, France, the United States, whatever. They all have censorship. But we don't have censorship. And by... Deny. On the one hand, Lenin and his followers and his his successors said we don't have censorship, but what the system that they put in, which I call omni-censorship, permeated the entire fabric of life in the Soviet Union so that everybody knew what to do. You knew from your boss. You knew from your colleagues. You knew from what you saw happening to other people around you. You knew when, for example, the Socialist Realism School came in. You knew that you'd better start painting a certain kind of historic scene with majestic, happy, strong peasants uh, and and uh, superhero welders and, and so on. And, and if you're Shostakovich or another Soviet composer, you'd better compose works that glorify whatever was being glorified at the time. And if you wanted to be published or you wanted to be, um, have your work displayed in a museum or whatever, um, this is what you had to do. And in the worst times, of course, if you didn't, you not only fell from favor, but you might end up in the gulag, or worse, dead. Um, but in even after Stalin, um, when, when a policy came in, and it kind of crept in and seeped in uh, throughout the society, if you wanted— To have your perks, as I mentioned before, if you wanted to travel abroad, if you wanted to be a a member in good standing of the Writers' Union or the Composers' Union or whatever, then you you would publish those kinds of books. And the other things that you might feel compelled to write from your soul, from your heart, you wrote them, as they said, for the drawer. You didn't try to publish them. You didn't show them to anybody because it was not in your best interest to do so.
4: So, obviously, this, at least on a global uh, stage, didn't end with Stalin. We've seen it exported to lots no. of other places. And now we see it in North Korea. And in North Korea, it's done oh, yeah. It's done in all the different ways that you've described. There, There is yes. omni-censorship. Omniscensor- Everybody knows what you can and what you can't say. And then there's really this kind of stuff that really is not all that different from what you described with Beria or with Trotsky. I mean, it happened yeah. pretty recently with uh, with Uncle Jang uh, Song-thek, who he's the executed uncle, who they, oh. they did did the same thing. They used Photoshop and airbrush and stuff like that and took him out of pictures and got him out of every single record that they possibly could. So, and you know, guess,
0: guess where they learned it? Yeah. <laughs> the Soviets exported this to China, to North Korea, to Cuba, to the countries surrounding them, Albania included, and you know uh, Romania and so on too. Yeah, they were great exporters of omni-censorship.
4: But yeah. you wonder... And with North Korea, another thing that they did, and you wonder how well this can work. I mean, obviously, North Korea has a level of state control that yes. it, it, it's it's mind-boggling. and, it may yeah, be, yeah. Uh, and But they recently uh, purged all of their state-approved news archives uh, st- uh, prior to, I think, 2013. In other words, their state-approved history now begins in 2013. And, yeah. and you sort of wonder what that – I mean <laughs> – <laughs> i mean people still have minds that are worrying along even in the most repressive state people are still thinking about things you, you wonder what that really accomplishes trying to pretend that history began in
0: 2013 uh, yeah it's 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 a, a a mystery to those of us who've not had to live under it i think when you and i've talked to many uh people who have survived you know the worst of 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 soviet times and i Uh, You know, you begin to get an understanding for what kind of mind game you have to play with yourself and with your children because you want to be sure that your children are safe, you know, that they are not going to blurt out something that you've talked about at home trying to preserve some sort of sane truth about history, you know. Uh, before, 19, uh, before 2013, for example. Uh, but if your children can't learn, they have to be taught to operate on on a dual level all the time. And I know many people who were raised that way, you know. Um, and and so it would be a field day for psychiatrists, <laughs> for psychologists, and therapists to to deal with people who've had to. Go through this kind of, of experience, it's hard for us to imagine um, yeah. pushing our minds in in that direction, but there are places all over the world unfortunately where where that is being done.
4: Um, we're going to have to stop there, but it's an interesting if chilling place to stop tax, Mariana talks Marianna, thank you so much for your time today.
0: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
4: All right. When we come back, we're going to uh, use another contemporary example and and not from a dictatorship. But what happens when there's a part of a local history that people are very uncomfortable with? This happened at Penn State. I'm sure you know the example uh, that I'm giving right now. You may not know the story of a piece of art that had to be changed. (laughs)
2: show is produced by Lennon <laughs> Brown and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Katie McAuliffe. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Also appearing in the intro is <coughs> for show pages, articles, and compelling evidence that the staff of the Faith Middleton Show included at one time Ralph Macchio. Visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, how much of fatigue is a figment of our minds? And now... Back to Colin.
4: That's right. Tomorrow we're going to be exploring the whole notion of fatigue. To what degree do we actually create that through some kind of um, unconscious dialogue between our mind and our body? Uh, And to what degree are some people able to push through that veil and find the universe uh, that lies on the other side of it? Anyway. That's a hard story to explain. Uh, anyway, we're going to um, finish this conversation today by talking about, you know, not not an issue of state control, but an issue of a community and maybe even a nation that's struggling with certain memories and, and struggling with commemoration of certain people that it no longer wants to commemorate in quite the same way. Uh, this is the story of Penn State. Uh, you all know it well. Now, you may not know the story of Michael Pilato. He's a globally recognized mural artist uh, whose, whose mural work does, in fact, commemorate people and, and appears, if I understand it correctly, in, in part of sort of a gigantic worldwide project. Um, but the story of the Penn State, State mural is one part of that overall project. It's a very special kind of story. Michael Pilato, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Well, thank you very much. It's uh it's great to to get the story out there.
4: <laughs> um so I, I hope I hope I've set this up in the right way. The way I understand it is that your murals are sort of meant to be implicitly interconnected, uh, almost all over the world.
3: Yes, yeah, so my partner business partner Yeri Karabash, and myself have been traveling the world for the last seven years, um, to different locations, working on things, um, with people that have done amazing things, saving people on sex trafficking to um, you know, building whistles in Burma, where, where, um, which helps girls not be raped on buses. And we highlight these amazing individuals within murals within their own communities, but then they connect to other communities via the Internet. All the murals will connect on the Internet to make one huge mural called the World Mural. And it kind of just shows very simply how we all love the same. Our cultures might be different, but we all, um, you know, we we cherish things like family and community very
4: very similarly. So one of those places where you've done this is at Penn State um, and the mural included Jerry Sandusky who was up to a certain point, a, a fairly revered person within the community is one of the assistant coaches in the Penn State football program. Joe Paterno is in there with a was in there with a, a halo uh, over his head, if I understand it correctly. And then suddenly that narrative changed, uh, and you were under a certain amount of pressure to do something about that this or to not do something about this. Explain the situation in which you found yourself.
3: Yeah, you know, so Yuri and myself had met Jerry Sandusky. Um, 15 years ago when we painted him on the mural and that both of us um, thought he was an amazing individual because of his organization The Second Mile and we ourselves were teachers in setting up an organization to help young at-risk youth so we looked at that program as a model as far as the sports part of it and so when we met him he was crying reading letters from kids you know he really groomed a whole community and the organization which we all thought at that time was outstanding you know reaching 30,000 people So when I read the grand jury report um, and all the different young men from different places and just how um, awful we all felt at that time about what this man was doing, grooming these young people, I drove up from our studio in Williamsport, Pennsylvania and removed him very quickly, hoping that nobody would be there. And it was, it was right out of the movie, hundreds of cameras, um, you know, just, it was, it was actually very scary. The, but you know, he's, still on that mural, but underneath the paint. He's in prison beneath, and what's above him now are hundreds of handprints from survivors of sexual violence who've come out and spoken out, and also a woman sitting in the seat who's a survivor herself who's helped for 15 years, the great Dora McQuaid. Um, A lot of victims become survivors with her poetry and her spoken word.
4: Was there any hesitation on your part? I mean, some artists might have said, well, okay, so those are the facts at this particular moment in history. I painted this mural at a different moment in history. Um, art is art; it's static, not fluid. We don't redo the David. Um, I, I, My I should, murals,
3: the yeah. murals that Yuri and I produce are living murals. Mm-hmm. So people have been painted out but moved to different sections. It goes; It's all done on something called Fibonacci, um, where a mathematical equation to bring emotions forth. And my beautiful daughter who left this earth a few months ago was a survivor of sexual violence, and the work that we did around the world was for her and others. And so when this tragedy hit Penn State, it hit me very closely. Um, and my biggest reason for removing him was I didn't want the young men to have to be walking down the street, and look up and see him on that wall. Also, um, you know, and I believed, because it was before the courts and everything, you know, I believe in the, you know, due process, but I also believed that if he were innocent, he would understand exactly why I was doing what I had to do. And then, you know, if the courts were to prove he was innocent, then I would put him back up there. But, of course, it wasn't that he is guilty and, you know, in jail where he should be. Um, with the halo on Joe Paterno, the interesting thing with sensationalism, you know, the story that that went to millions of people around the world, um, that image of the halo when when I painted that on there. But what is not told is that there were 28 halos on that mural, and then I've been painting – Yuri and I have been painting halos on people for the last 15 years, just for the simple reason that when students walk by the work and they see the halos appearing, it shows how short of a time we have here on Earth to do great things like the people on the wall – and then when Joe Paterno's halo went on, it became very apparent that people were taking a sanctification. Um, and, you know, the thousands of letters for us even to paint Joe off the wall, you know, the hate mail, the, it's just incredible, the pressure. And then Sue Paterno had said Joe was neither a saint nor a villain, he was a human being. She said that publicly. And that's when we removed all 28 halos, not just Joe Paterno's halo. But, of course, that was the story. So the story that went out was that Joe Paterno's halo was removed the free report comes out and so again the w- great word narrative there's so many narratives that we can, can be driven um and today as artists we have to be careful and i learned you know you got to acclimate yourself to certain situations with social media you know they can take just a part of what you say and it becomes what people believe the narrative to be um and in the case of the joe paterno halo removal that's exactly what
4: happened So, you, in a way, though, these things start to become a little bit like dominoes. You've got the Jerry Sandusky uh, domino that knocks into the Joe Paterno domino. That knocks into the domino of the Penn State president, who was also, I think, on the mural. And didn't you have people throwing eggs at his section of the mural?
3: Yeah, and he's still on the mural. You know, the court cases are still coming up. Um, You know, I'm deciding to do after the court cases. You know, you know, not rushing to judgment. Again, the only reason— with Sandusky is because he's the one that committed the crimes. And, you know, the young men walking by and looking up, I'm I'm proud of what I did there by painting him off the mural. I'm not so proud about the halo just because I should have never painted halos on the murals 15 years ago to begin with. But we live and learn, and as artists, especially artists that own the work that they do, we have the opportunity to correct and to, in a way, ask for forgiveness and move forward. Um, and again... When you look at the mural, because there's a, a woman sitting in the seat that he once sat in, who is a great survivor and a great activist, um, in a way the memory of what he did still remains and with the imprints and the people speaking out. So it's not even like he's being erased from history, because that part of history is still with us, the part that we have to learn from and move forward um, within communities. You know, the, There's many lessons that we've learned from the Penn State Thank
4: Michael Pilato, thank you so much for sharing some of those messages, some of those lessons with us. Thanks again to Lydia Brown, who produced this wonderful show before she, unfortunately, was bitten by a zombie, became a walker. Uh, But she's an adorable walker. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks to Kion Wolf for being on the board. Betsy Kaplan for jumping in and helping uh, in Lydia's absence.
2: guy who sold me a chevy corvair gone my seventh grade bully gone the pretty unicorn with a donut on its nose you're pretty baby do you want me to draw you a mustache i have a magic sharpie it smells so good Ugh.